The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity and was recorded at Westminster Chapel in Toronto. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to declare the Lordship of Jesus Christ over every area of life, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Our scripture reading this morning is from 2 Samuel and chapter 15. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to, rise, used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Gashur in Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet... Then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. And a messenger came to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out and all his household after him. And the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out and all the people after him, and they halted at the last house. And all his servants passed by him, and all the Cherethites and all the Pelethites and all the six hundred Gittites who had followed him from Gath passed on before the king. Then the king said to Ittai the Gittite, Why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king. For you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday, and shall I today make you wander about with us, since I go I know not where? Go back and take your brothers with you, and may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But Ittai answered the king, As the Lord lives, and as my lord the king lives, wherever my lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. And David said to Ittai, Go then, pass on. 
So Ittai the Gittite passed on with all his men and all the little ones who were with him. And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by, and the king crossed the brook Kidron, and all the people passed on toward the wilderness. And Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also with all the Levites, bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, Carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons, Ahimaaz your son and Jonathan the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. While David was coming to the summit, where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai the archite came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. David said to him, If you go on with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in time past, so now I will be your servant. Then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. Are not Zadok and Abiathar the priests with you there? So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Behold, their two sons are with them there, Ahimaaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall send to me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city, just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, brothers and sisters. Well, before we consider this passage before us, let's just ask once again for the Lord's blessing on his word. God, our Father, we remember on the Mount of Transfiguration how Peter, James, and John heard your testimony of your Son, the Lord Jesus, as he was seen in his glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, listen to him. And they fell to their faces. Lord Jesus, we remember how you touched them, and they lifted up their eyes, and they saw no one save Jesus only. And that is what we want this morning. We want to see no man save Jesus only. May it be so, we pray, for we ask it, our Father, in the worthy name of your Son, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, we read in the scriptures in Second Timothy that in the last days, 
difficult or perilous times will come. And we read that one of the reasons why these difficult times will come is that people, there will be people that are opposed to the truth. And surely we have come upon those times today. For we have unprecedented times of deception, times where that which is evil is called good, and that which is good is called evil. And it is impossible for us to get our footings, our bearings in the shifting sand of human opinion. And this morning, we don't need another man's opinion, do we? What we need to hear is God. What we need is his truth. That's what we need to hear. I'm reminded of the Apostle Paul when he met for the last time with the Ephesian elders. And he said this, and I'll read it. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified." The Apostle Paul knew that just after he left that church that he had spent three years with, that there were those who he likened to fierce wolves that would pounce, those that would speak twisted words to try to unsettle and destroy these young believers in Ephesus. And he knew that he could no longer be there to defend them. But he knew the word that he had preached to them for the last three years, night and day. And he knew that that had the power to preserve them. And so he commends them to God and he commends them to the word of his grace. Now the same is true this morning. I can't build you up and I can't preserve you. I have no authority. The only authority that I have is this book, is the word of God. And I know what can preserve you. I know what can sustain you, and that is the Word of God. Calvin wrote in his commentary on the, uh, the epistle to the Ephesians, he said, It is certain that if we come to church, we shall not only hear mortal man speaking, but we will feel that God is speaking to our souls, that he is the teacher. He so touches us that the human voice enters into us and so profits us that we are refreshed and nourished by it, close quote. Now, if this is to be true this morning, we must come under the authority of the word of God. This is what we call expository preaching, which we are committed to in the life of Westminster Chapel. And expository preaching is that, We don't come to the scripture with our own ideas. We don't come to the scripture with our own agenda and seek out proof texts for them. What we do is we come to the text and we take it as it is and we come under the authority and let the text set the agenda for what we're going to talk about and how we are going to consider it. 
But I want to say to you, brothers and sisters, that it is not just the work of the preacher to be an expositor. It is the business of each one of us. And so the first thing that we need to do as we come to a scripture like this this morning is we need to have read it first. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands as to who has read the scripture before we get here. I know we have visitors, but I hope, maybe we'll do that next week, but I hope that we have read it and that we have meditated on it. How are you going to know that what I say is from this text if you haven't read it yourself first? Now, the second thing we have to do is what we have done, is the reverent public reading of the word. It is not something, some sort of ritual that we just go through to get on to the real business of teaching or preaching. No, it is the real work of preaching. It is the most important thing that we have done this morning, is to hear the word of God. But the third thing we must do is to accept the assumptions, the conclusion that Scripture makes about us in order for us to understand it. We often hear people say, I read the Word of God, but I don't understand it. I don't understand its relevance. It doesn't make sense to me. And that's often because we don't accept the basic assumptions that Scripture makes about us. So, for example, the Bible does not assume that mankind is basically good. No, but rather that mankind is thoroughly depraved. It presents God's wrath over sin. And one way by which mankind can be reconciled to God, and that is by repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ is the theme of each and every one of the 66 books in the Bible. And God's way with mankind in reconciling them to himself and making them like Christ, the theme of each book. So as we start to do the work of exposition on this chapter this morning, we must start with God's conclusion about man, right? Man is not basically good, he is depraved. God is seeking to reconcile depraved man to himself. Reconciliation with God is by faith, repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. The Old Testament saint, like David, did not know Christ, but in faith looked forward to God's provision of the Lamb of God, which we know to be Jesus Christ, our Lord. So with that, as a foundation to build upon, let's consider the chapter that we have before us this morning. And what we have here is Absalom's rebellion. Having been restored without repentance, his heart is filled with anger and rebellion, and he now sets in motion a premeditated coup against his father. He gets a following by fomenting discontent into the heart of David's subjects, And then he seeks out a man who is a powerful man, one of David's counselors, a man by the name of Ahithophel, who has a grudge against David and makes him part of this rebellion. And then he goes, Absalom goes to Hebron under false pretenses, of course, Hebron being the place where David had been anointed king. And he sends secretly messengers throughout all the tribes to gather a following 
and join this insurrection. And the hearts of the people of Israel are turned against their king, David. David receives word of the rebellion. He received words, he receives word that the hearts of the men of Israel, the people of Israel, have gone after Absalom, whereupon David arises and he flees from Jerusalem with those that are faithful to him. And in his flight from Jerusalem, he comes upon three faithful friends who each deliver a particular service to David in his time of need. That is a summary of what we have had in that rather lengthy chapter. Now, to give you something to sort of hang on to as we go through this chapter, I want to break it into two sections, verses 1 to 12 and verses 13 to the end. And in both of those sections, we have three men. In the first section, we have three wounded men. And in the second section, we have three faithful friends. Just those two things, three wounded men and three faithful friends. Okay, let's start with the three wounded men. Now, we really can't understand this chapter unless we, and what's happening here, unless we go back to David's sin with Bathsheba and his subsequent murder of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. And we see in this that even a man that is a man after God's own heart, when he turns away from God, exhibits his depravity once again. But David received forgiveness for his adultery, for his murder, for his deception, using his position as king to try to cover this up. Because he came to God in complete brokenness and sorrow, and he repented of the sin. He did not blame anyone else. He took full responsibility for it, and he came in repentance and cast himself on the mercy of God. God, in turn, forgave David. But God did not remove the temporal consequences of his sin. David had sowed the wind, as we have in Hosea. David had sowed the wind, and now he will reap the whirlwind, forgiveness notwithstanding. Now, in the first 12 verses of this chapter, we see how the sin of David, though repented of and forgiven, brought about tragic consequences to three men, the three wounded men. And one of those men, the first of those wounded men, is David himself. I believe that David was haunted by the specter of the poor man in Nathan's parable to him. You remember when Nathan came to David after David had been in this sin with Bathsheba for a number of months that Nathan had come to David with a story, a story of a man who had a little lamb. And he loved and nourished that little lamb like it was his own daughter. And there was another man, a rich man, who had many flocks, And he had a a traveling visitor come. And rather than taking one of his own lambs, he took this poor man's lamb, killed it, and fed it to his guest. David, having a sensitive heart for sheep, being a shepherd, was incensed and declared that this man ought to die and that he would restore fourfold. Whereupon Nathan said, David, you're the man. And I don't think David ever really got over that. And it it affected his sense of moral authority and his performance as a father. Look at verse 1. 
After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. Now, if you're a careful student of the word of God, you'll say, I've read that somewhere before. I've read about another man that got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And you would find that in 1 Kings 1 and 1. This time it is not Absalom, but it is Absalom's younger brother, Adonijah. And it says of him in verse 5, Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, Why have you done thus and so? He also he was also a very handsome man, and he was born next after Absalom. Now, I think it's clear that the writer here wants us to see the similarities between Adonijah and Absalom. They're brothers. They're closest in age. They both have aspirations to be the king. They are both handsome. And they both have been unchallenged by their father. David never confronted Adonijah for this rebellious thing that he did, just as he never confronted Absalom, and just as he never confronted his son Amnon. Why did he not confront Adonijah? Well, it says here that it would have displeased Adonijah. Well, so what? So what? David didn't have any trouble. He wasn't a wilting flower. He didn't have any trouble confronting people who were rebellious. Look what he did to those that were the alleged murderers of Saul. Look what he did to the murderers of Ishbosheth. He didn't have any problem confronting people. Why was it different with his sons? And I think the answer is that often those who are awash in their own guilt have difficulty confronting sin in their children because they feel that they are ultimately to blame for it. They feel that they are ultimately to blame for it. That is why we have so many passive fathers in churches today that won't stand up to their kids because they are riddled with their own guilt. And even when God has forgiven, it can be very hard to recover that sense of moral authority. But you know, men, and I'm specifically going to mention the men because I think it's primarily our responsibility, we must. None of us is without sin. But if we have fully repented of our sin, without making excuses, if we have gone to God about it, then we, as we have in Psalm 51, we too can teach transgressors God's way, as David said. If you don't, men, if you don't, you are sowing the wind right now, and you will reap the whirlwind. Now that lingering guilt in David's life led to passivity, and it set off, it set off a chain of events that we saw in the previous chapter. We don't read that David ever brought Amnon, his oldest son, to justice for violating Tamar, Absalom's sister. It appears that Absalom waited two years for David to bring justice to this situation, and when he didn't, David took the matter, or rather, Absalom took the matter into his own hands and killed Amnon, seeking to get justice his own way. And then David, rather than bringing Absalom to justice, leaves him in exile. And when Absalom manipulates his way back into the kingdom, he avoids him for yet another two years. 
And when Absalom, now smoldering with rage, finally manipulates himself back, himself back into David's presence, there's no wonderful reunion like the returning prodigal son that we heard about last week. Because there was restoration with no repentance, and that produces a rebel. Restoration without repentance produces a rebel. And now you have a young man that is bent on making his passive father feel the pain that he has felt over his sister Tamar and over his banishment and his feelings of rejection. But there's a third man. There's a third man that has been wounded as well. And that is David's most trusted counselor, a man by the name of Ahithophel. For not only is he David's trusted counselor, but he also happens to be the grandfather of Bathsheba. And it is hard to imagine that his treacherous acts in this story are not motivated by that. By what David did to his granddaughter and what he did to his grandson-in-law. So three wounded men in need of reconciliation. David found reconciliation and repentance. And while the scars remained, the bones that had been broken were healed, as we have in Psalm 32, and he was restored to God. But Absalom and Ahithophel were so consumed with their hurt and need for revenge that they never came to see their own need for repentance, and they met a tragic end. Now, it does beg the question, doesn't it, whether you have chosen the path of David or whether you have chosen the path of Absalom and Ahithophel. Whether you have made yourself a victim in search of justice for yourself and others, or whether you have acknowledged your guilt and repentance towards God and placed your faith in the Lord Jesus. You know, when you refuse to repent and accept the gospel of the grace of God, you have no choice but to seek for another gospel to deal with your guilt. That is what's going on in the world today. This world is laden with guilt. And particularly this country. And that presents a tremendous opportunity for those who want to control and expand their powers. Because a guilty people are an easily manipulated people. People unwilling to be reconciled to God go about seeking their own righteousness. And there are many people that are happy to show them another path to reconciliation, another path to righteousness. But it is not a path to reconciliation, but it is rather a path that leads to destruction. It is another gospel. It's a false gospel. Now, one such gospel, one such false gospel, is the gospel of social justice. And basically... It makes you responsible and therefore guilty for every injustice and every inequality in the world. And the only way that you can shed your guilt is speaking against and tearing down the institutions that are deemed responsible for or have benefited from inequality. But the removal of guilt does not come from virtue signaling and from confessing other people's sins before the world. It comes from repenting of your own sins before God in whose courts you stand and to whom you must answer. Removal of guilt does not come by confessing your sins before the world. It comes by repenting 
before Almighty God, before whom you have sinned, you and I have sinned, and, and in whose court we must surely stand. Now, I don't want to be misunderstood. <clears throat> As Christians, we hate injustice, and, per, and particularly injustice committed against those who are vulnerable, including minorities. We hate it, and we condemn it, because God hates it and condemns it. But we understand that the answer to it, like any other evil in society, is the gospel, the ministry of reconciliation that has been committed to us. We don't turn from that gospel to another gospel, lest we fall under the condemnation that the Apostle Paul proclaimed against those that would preach another gospel. Remember what he said in Galatians, if I or an angel of God preach any other gospel than what I have committed to you, let him be accursed. I don't want to be accursed. I don't want to turn people away from the true gospel to another gospel. You know, it's very interesting to me how Absalom used what I'll call tribalism effectively to turn the hearts of the people away from David. Let me read to you in verse 2. Listen carefully to this. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. Now notice how the people that are most susceptible to Absalom's manipulation are those that have a grievance, those that have been wounded. So he seeks them out. And he pours fuel on their grievance by making out that there is no one to give them justice. And then it seems that he connects that to their tribal affiliation. And you know, those that have been wounded are most susceptible to being used in this way as pawns by those who are seeking only to achieve their own political ends. They make the wounded victims and then they control them with entitlements. And don't think that unity in the church can't be impacted by all of this as well. Our enemy knows just how to push our buttons, doesn't he? And we are not ignorant as to his devices. One of the ways that he seeks to sow discord among brothers and sisters is by making people feel that they are being treated unfairly. And he really scores if he can make that inequality appear to be because of your position in the church or because of your ethnicity. And I think we read how this happened in the early church in Acts 6. The Greeks raised a complaint against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution, it seems. And I think this was an early effort by Satan to try to bring division into the church using ethnicity. And practical steps had to be taken to keep this from happening. The apostles didn't turn from preaching the word to being all about solving this problem. But neither did they turn a blind eye to it. Rather, they appointed seven men full of the spirit to deal with the matter. Now, as a church... We can navigate these kind of problems effectively when we have men and women who are filled with the Holy Spirit who will devote themselves to these things. 
That is why we need to, in the church, get a a focus upon maturing one another in Christ. If If the apostles had left off preaching to serve tables, there would not have been seven men filled with the Holy Spirit that they could, they could have attended to this task. Now, the church of Jesus Christ should be a model to the world of how every tribe and nation and ethnicity can function together in loving unity. For the Lord Jesus Christ is our risen head in heaven. And we are members of his body on earth. And we are brought together by the bonds of the Holy Spirit that unite us. For we are all one in Jesus. Now, of course, for this to be true and to be manifest to the world, we must walk in a manner worthy of our calling with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Well, let's get back to our chapter. In verse 13, word reaches David of Absalom's conspiracy. And David and those who are faithful to him retreat from Jerusalem in a long procession. And it's a very touching scene in verse 17. They halted at the last house. One last sorrowful look at the city David loved so much. One last sorrowful look at the people that he had for so many years faithfully shepherded and now they had turned on him and in verse 30 and 31 we have this heart-rending scene but David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives weeping as he went barefoot and with his head covered and all the people who were with him covered their heads and they went up weeping as they went and it was told David Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom you know I think that must have been perhaps one of the toughest things. I can't imagine that David was that surprised at the treachery of his son Absalom. I'm sure that he was to some degree. But to think that the man that he had confided so much in had been harboring all of this time, this bitterness towards him, must have been more than he could bear. Now, when we come to an emotional verse like this in Scripture, the temptation could be for us to try to use our own experience in order to understand why the Holy Spirit has preserved this in Scripture for us. But again, an expository approach to Scripture says this, asks this question. What other Scriptures has the Holy Spirit placed within the inspired text that would help me to understand God's purposes for recording this here. And if you were to ask that question, you would not be disappointed. For we have in Psalm 41, in David's lament in Psalm 41, we most certainly, almost certainly have David thinking of the treachery of Ahithophel. And I wish we had time to read more of that, but I'm just going to read one verse from at verse 9 of Psalm 41. Excuse me. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. And the Lord Jesus Christ in John 13 and 18, he quotes this verse with reference to Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. And when you see this, you understand that the Lord recorded this story because he knows that there is a unique pain in betrayal like no other pain. And that pain is accentuated many times over 
when the one that betrayed you is the one who you went to with your, all your dreams and hopes? When it's the one that you went to with your deepest secrets and your pain and sorrow? The one that you thought was being faithful to you and all the time, all the time there has been deception. There is no pain, I think, quite like that. And there are some here this morning that feel that pain. Why did God allow his servant David to experience this pain from Ahithophel? Why did Jesus choose a disciple like Judas who he knew would betray him? And I think the answer is because he didn't want you to be able to say that you are this morning alone in your pain. The treachery of Ahithophel was used by the Holy Spirit to make David, a suitable instrument to prophetically speak of the sufferings of Christ at the hands of man. And in that Christ suffered in this way, he is able to comfort you in your grief over the sting of behavior. Now, if you don't take the time to interpret Scripture with Scripture, you miss this. That's an important thing for us to do. And if we had time, we would look at Psalm 55, where I believe David's heart and emotion. We hear David's heart and emotion over Absalom's treachery as well. But notice again in Psalm 41 verse 4, David says, as for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me for I have sinned against you. And surely that this is evidence that as David was going through this trial and fleeing for his life in the back of his mind was this nagging sense This didn't have to be. It was because of my sin. And I'm sure he rued the day that he'd ever taken a second look at Bathsheba. And maybe this morning you're thinking, you know, how can I go to God in my sorrow when I am the author of it? When I have brought it upon myself? Well, this is exactly the situation that David was in. And in the later part of this chapter, we see that while the consequences of David's sin are not taken away, God is with David in the trial, and he makes provision for him in the form of three friends. And that takes us to our second section, which I'm going to pass over very quickly. Our second section, we've talked about three wounded men, now we're going to talk about three faithful friends. First there is Ittai the Gittite. These are great names. Then there's the priests, Zadok and Abiathar. And finally there's David's counselor, Hushai the Archite. Say that fast. Now these three represent three characteristics of a true friend and represent how God remained with David as he reaped the whirlwind. Ittai represents a faithful friend who will not leave your side no matter how bad things are, no matter how much you are to blame. He seeks nothing in return, and he will stay by your side to the death. David says to Ittai, you only joined me yesterday, and you're a foreigner and an exile from your own home. Are you going to wander around with me? And Ittai gives this classic response, which reminds you a little bit of what Ruth said to Naomi. He says, as the Lord lives and as my Lord the King lives, wherever my Lord the King shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. Ittai says, if you want to know where to find me, just find David, I'll be at his side. If he's in a palace, fine. If he's in exile, fine. That's fine too. My life is about serving him and protecting him, not my own comfort. If you have such a person in your life, you are very rich. 
What made Ittai this kind of a friend? He knew what it was to be an exile. Trials produce character, and trials endured together form a very special bond. You know, we as a church may be in for difficult times ahead. We may be in for difficult trials, and the temptation can be to run. Don't be too quick to run, for God uses those trials to produce character and to form the deepest of friends. And then there's the priest Zadok and Abiathar, and they come to David, and they bring the ark of God to David, the token of God's presence. David says, take it back. Don't bring God's presence to me. Restore me to the presence of God. That's what a faithful friend does. He doesn't bring God down to your level and tell you it doesn't matter. God accepts you just the way you are. No, a true friend works to bring you back into communion with God. And he's willing to risk the relationship and risk your anger by telling you the truth. He or she is willing to risk hurting you to tell you the truth because they are more concerned about bringing you back to God than making you feel good. If you have a friend like that, you're very rich. Hushai is a wise and a practical friend. He may not spend a lot of time weeping with you, but he has a unique ability to see that one practical thing that you need more than anything else, and he faithfully and reliably attends to that until the job is done. Now both Hushai and David knew that naturally speaking there was no hope for them unless the council of Ahithophel could be overthrown. And Hushai was in a unique position as a wise counselor to speak into that situation. And so he takes his life in his hands and he goes and attends to that. He was a reliable friend. And if you have such a friend in your life, you are very rich. So there you have it. Three friends each with a very special gift, loyalty, honesty, and reliability. And perhaps you have there a rubric to assess the kind of friend you are. Do you have a friend that's living in the backwash of their sin, reaping the whirlwind? Are you that kind of friend to them? Do you wait for them to get back up on their feet until they're all restored and then you'll be their friend? It's not what David did. So in this chapter, we have David facing the consequences of his sin. And in the next few chapters, Ahithophel and Absalom will face the consequences of their sins. But there is a world of a difference between the reaping of Absalom and Ahithophel and the reaping of David. For though David's reaping is painful, he does not face it alone. He faces it with three friends... And those three friends are merely the hands and feet and heart of David's greatest friend and defender and savior. The friend that sticks closer than a brother. The friend that we sung about in our first hymn. Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Jesus, lover of my soul. Friends may fail me. Foes assail me. He, my savior, makes me whole. Closing, I want to ask you, is he your friend? Has he borne your sins or do they still sit heavy, rest heavy upon your shoulders? When you meet him someday, as you most certainly will, will you meet him as your friend and your savior or will you meet him as your judge? This morning we bring you to the cross of Christ. We point you to Jesus, the friend of sinners. Come to him. 
Come to him in repentance and faith. And you will leave here with a friend that sticks closer than a brother. He will be with you in life. He will be with you in death. And he will be with you for all eternity. Let's pray. God our Father, we thank you for the hope we have that we have the promise of God and the promise that God can never lie. And we thank you for the refuge that we have, the anchor for our souls. May we, Lord, in a tempestuous sea, be steadied and stabilized and at peace, knowing that we are in Christ and Christ is in God. We worship you and thank you for your word and thank you for your Holy Spirit that makes it good to us. We pray this, our Father, in the precious and powerful name of your Son, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's come to the Lord's table. This message has been brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share this content, but do not charge for it or alter it in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. For more resources, please visit ezrainstitute.ca.